What I love about the scriptures is the idea, the, the reality that these words were offered in intimate community throughout generations. That the text we heard from First Ephesians was offered to a church that might not have been much larger than this, hunkered down in the middle of a city, in the middle of a mighty nation, mighty Roman Empire. And the words that echo to us from Matthew probably were first heard by a small gathering of disciples who were just hunkered together in the midst of a world that didn't really know or care about them. And Ezekiel, the words that echo from there are just full of longing, so much longing for a people that were scattered to the winds, living alone amongst themselves in the midst of the Babylonian Empire. They must have felt so far from anyone they knew, Anyone who cared about their story, knew them by name, knew their history. It is a deep longing that we sense in the text where God promises that I myself will gather you over and over again. It is important for humans to gather. It is important whether it is in a 6th century Babylonian empire, 6th century BCE Babylonian empire, or 1st century Ephesus or 21st century Richmond, Virginia. It is important for humans to gather, even if we are frustrated sometimes by those whom we are gathering with, even if we struggle sometimes with those who we sit near, sometimes we struggle to get along or to not be annoyed or to move on with our day when someone really bugs us. There are lots of challenges of community, but it is important for people to gather to gather together and to remember who they are and whose they are. I was reminded of the importance of this when I read a recent story in the Guardian newspaper. It was a fascinating story about a series of family reunions from the year 2011 to 2017. And these family reunions happened at Prospect Hill Plantation in Jefferson County, Mississippi. Prospect Hill Plantation was a plantation that was founded by Isaac Ross, a white, obviously, plantation owner who had moved from South Carolina. He was a civil, uh, Revolutionary War veteran, and he had fought in the Revolutionary War alongside emancipated black slaves. And so he brought some of them to him with the plantation. And while he did run a plantation with slaves on it, when he died, he provided in his will for the plantations to be, to be sold and the profits given to help uh, send emancipated slaves back to Africa. Or actually, I shouldn't even say back to Africa because many of them were American and had been living here. But if they chose, they could go back to the western coast of Africa. So Isaac Ross had this legacy that left behind white descendants as well as black American descendants who had lived and decided not to go back to Africa, and black African descendants who had moved back to Liberia. And yet they were immigrants in Liberia. It created this huge collection of people that were a fascinating mixture, and they were all coming back together for a series of family reunions. It was a fascinating scene that they describe in this article. And everyone's kind of milling about, waiting seemingly for something. And when the van shows up, with the passengers from Africa, and the doors open, everyone broke into applause. It was the climax of a lot of anticipation, a lot of built-up kind of worries, anxieties, as well as excitement. 
These Liberians had traveled about 5,000 miles in 170 years, traveled all night in order to come together to this family reunion. This article continues with various descriptions of the people who had gathered there. They, as you can imagine, they all had these different histories that overlapped in some ways that were surprising. Members of the Liberian group felt particularly a sense of relief coming to Prospect Hill because they had heard the name Captain Ross throughout their family lore. And interestingly, in Liberia, they were treated often as immigrants because they had come from the United States. One woman, Evangeline Wayne, said, she, I, didn't, I didn't expect this. She was crying when she said this. I didn't know what I expected, but it wasn't this. To be honest, I'm unsure of who and what I am and where I fit in. To be honest, I'm considered a foreigner in Liberia, even though I'm from there. And since I have moved to the United States, I'm considered a foreigner here as well. Another Liberian, Claudius Ross, says he was told by other Liberians, you don't belong here. Go back to where you come from. He said, I was humiliated and sad. It led me on this journey of trying to figure out exactly who I am. Where does my name come from? What does it mean? Who do I, does it belong to? And so for both of them, visiting Prospect Hill was this answer to prayer. But not everything was always relief and lighthearted, as you can, might imagine. Charles Greenlee, a white descendant of the plantation's owners, said he was filled with anxiety the week prior to the reunion, as well as the day of the event, and he could hardly contain his emotions and tears as the van pulled up and the doors opened. And another slave owner descendant, Jim Deloche, said that when he made plans to attend, he couldn't help but feel apprehensive at first. He wondered if he might encounter some hostility. He was surprised to encounter people instead who were relieved to be there, people who were proud of what their ancestors had survived, people who were excited to reconnect to the legacy of Prospect Hill. One of the descendants of the freed blacks who had stayed talked about how the story of Prospect Hill shows how mixed up this history of the United States actually is. How it isn't always about slave versus free and black versus white, how people are a lot more intertwined than we would even like to admit. One of the descendants of a couple that was a white Ross slave, uh, uh, owner, well, he, it was, he was a later member, no longer an owner. He was in a long-time union with a woman of color, and by all the family lore, it was a love match. And so the descendants own this union proudly and are mixed race proudly. They, one of the women said, this is our family history, really mixed up. But at the end of the day, it explains a lot about America today. We are entangled in ways we don't even know, and it tends to get lost because it's not talked about, so we don't really know what's going on. We all have a lot to talk about, don't we? You never know how people are connected until you sit down and talk. This whole article stood out to me. It just seemed so different than the way we tend to live our lives here and now in our culture in the 21st century, particularly in Richmond, Virginia. We work hard to stay away from awkward conversations. We get bored by the slow work of building relationships and connecting with people. 
We like to stay in our nice, safe space with people who make us feel comfortable. We do this both out in the world and in the church. And that's why I think this promise that we hear in Ezekiel is a tough promise sometimes. It's the same promise we're hearing in the Matthew text. God is promising to gather the whole messy family back together and to show them who's actually in charge. God is gathering the whole messy family back together and we're going to be surprised by who is invited to the family reunion. It might be the person who annoys us, who shows up on our porch asking for money yet again. It might be the person who disappointed us and has ended up in jail once more. It might be the person that we avoid thinking about throughout the day, but then who inevitably pops into our mind when we're lying awake at night. God is going to get the whole messy family back together, and there is nothing we can do about it. God is in charge. We don't know. This is interesting in the Matthew text. We don't know if we are sheep or goats. The sheep and the goats are both surprised by what God is saying to them. So it is worth remembering that we cannot stand here or sit here and make judgments on who or what is a sheep and a goat. The reminder of this text is God is the one who is in charge. God is the one who is in charge and who is showing us what happens when God steps into the leadership role when God is the one gathering us from the ends of the earth, when God is the one giving us direction and showing us what God's vision for the whole world is. Gathering together is important. There is strength and power in coming together, particularly when we see that God is the one who is drawing us. God is the one who is gathering us. After all, We worship a Messiah, a Jesus who crossed roads and regions in order to talk to people, to sit down with them, to look them in the eyes and listen to their stories. This Jesus did not hold himself off at a distance. This Jesus listened to and spoke directly to the woman at the well, the hemorrhaging woman, the woman who was about to be stoned for adultery. He listened to and spoke directly with a tiny tax collector who had cheated and climbed his way through life. He looked at and spoke directly to thieves and prostitutes and fisher folk. These were not people that you wanted to hang out with in first century Palestine. So if we come to this text with any question about what it means to live into God's vision for the world, what it means to care for the least of these, well then we should just look at Jesus. Because Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is showing us what to do. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to sit down and talk with the hungry and the poor and the outcast and the sinner and the thirsty, to sit down and talk with the criminal, the brokenhearted, the restless, and the powerful. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with people that we'd probably rather avoid. Jesus is showing us what can happen when we gather together in the name of the Lord to really look at and listen to each other. When God gets the whole messy family back together, Jesus isn't going to hold himself off as the most honored guest. He's not going to show up fashionably late. Jesus is going to throw himself into the fray. 
He is going to throw himself into the small talk and the close talkers, into the conversation and the deep questions. Jesus is going to make sure that everyone has something to eat and drink, that everyone's plates are laden with food and their cup is filled to the brim, and that no one is hiding in the corner. When God gets the family back together, Jesus is going to be the first one at the door to welcome us. Jesus the Christ is going to be our host. Last month, I, uh, well, I'm in a training program for a certificate in community organizing and congregational leadership from, through Johnson C. Smith Seminary. And last, week, uh, it was, last month, I was at a conference in Baltimore where we heard a story of an action that had succeeded in the most impoverished neighborhoods in Baltimore. It was an action that created 300 entry-level jobs through the Johns Hopkins system, and these jobs paid a living, sustainable wage. This great idea, this beautiful program, did not start with people in power or politicians or people sitting alone thinking up good things to do for this neighborhood. It started with a pastor who was sitting in his office, looking out the street, and he saw about 30 able-bodied men out there at 10 a.m. on a Monday. And he just got tired of it. So he didn't stay in the office. Instead, he grabbed a clipboard and went out and asked each man face to face, eye to eye, what do you need to get off the street? And each one said, a job that I can get to with a living wage. So this started a bunch of conversations amongst local congregations and neighborhood associations and the local community organizer. And at the time, there was a CEO of Johns Hopkins who was actually wanting to do something in the community, wanting to build more relationships. Johns Hopkins is one of the biggest employers in the city of Baltimore, and a lot of money is there, but there's not always been a lot of connection with the, local, with the city and local neighborhoods. But when this CEO expressed an interest in doing something in the city, what they did, the community organization did, is they took him into the backyard in one of the poorest neighborhoods and sat him down face to face with residents so he could hear from them directly what they needed to survive. Face to face, eye to eye, perhaps a bit of an awkward conversation, but he went and the people talked and he listened. And they realized with a bit of an insurance tweak, they could get enough money to make these 300 jobs. Well. As you can imagine, an insurance tweak that would kind of close the loop and create some money, there might be someone who resists that, the insurance company. So they tried to negotiate. That didn't, that didn't work. Once those fell through, the CEO of Johns Hopkins came to the local AME bishop, who was one of the heads of the community organization, and he said, all right, I'm going to need you all to do what you do. And the bishop said, does that mean the gloves are off? And he said, yes. So this community organization gathered and started to picket at the local health services. It was just a blank you know, de uh, deck of offices, and they picketed every day, drawing attention to themselves, drawing attention to the cause. They eventually got a sit-down with the president of the insurance company, and he was very annoyed and very irate. And here's the interesting thing. Their, their ask, as they picketed day after day, was not for 300 jobs. It was for a one face-to-face -face conversation with this president. It was to sit down and look at him, look him in the eye, and let him hear the stories of the residents. They did not go in immediately with their ask. They said, we just want 
of sit-down meeting. We are protesting here and picketing here until you just sit down with us and look face to face. The president knew that once that happened, powerful things would happen next. Powerful things happen when people gather in the name of the Lord and try to put into place something of God's vision in the world. But that starts often with a face-to-face meeting. And so they got the face-to-face meeting, and the president yielded, and the insurance policy was tweaked, and Johns Hopkins created these jobs, and a program has been created that offers job training as well as comprehensive wraparound care. All this came after months and months of negotiations, months and months of people getting together and asking questions and sharing stories and looking in each other's eyes and wondering what God is doing next with this gathered community. It is important for people to gather. There might be awkward conversations. There might be tough questions. We might have to look face to face with people that we don't like very much, people who challenge us, people who've even disappointed us. Still, we remember that we are not gathering on our own and we are not gathering of our own will. It is God who gathers us. It is God who calls the sheep back from the scattered hillsides. It is God who calls descendants back together to hear each other's stories. It is God who is going to get the whole messy family back together. And it is Jesus the Christ who is going to sit down and look at us and ask us our names and listen to our stories. For when God gets the whole family back together, it is Jesus who is going to be welcoming us, who is going to be our host. And so we give thanks. And so we pray. Pray with me. God, you have gathered us for a little while and you are doing great things in our midst, things that we can see and things that we cannot see yet. And so we pray that you will fill us up with your strength, with your power. You will empty us of ourselves and fill us up with the desire to seek you in the world and to seek your face in the face of each other the least and the last and the lost among us, even so. We pray all these things in your holy name.